Great. Well, if I've not met you, my name is Clay. Um, I'm the college pastor here, and it's just a joy to be with you tonight and to open the Word of God. Um, as we get into that, let's, um, let's go before the Father in prayer and just ask Him to bless our time. Father, we bow before you, and uh, we are just humbled to be your people. Father, I've had the privilege of just really marinating in Ephesians all, uh, all this week, and particularly all day today, and my soul is full um, of encouragement. And I pray that that would translate uh, to these folks tonight. I pray that your spirit would be pleased to uh, take your word and um, open eyes and encourage hearts tonight and um, that you would build us up and produce fruit, the fruit that you desire to see in our ministry, that um, we would just bring you tremendous glory, and uh, we ask all in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's great to be back together again tonight. Uh, this is one of the highlights of my week, studying God's Word together, spending time with you is one of my favorite things to do. And I love being with you guys because there's so much energy in the college department. There's a lot of energy in my own children's ministry at home, too. But that's a different kind of energy. I have two kids and one on the way. And um, so, super fun. But it, you guys have, you bring so much to the table, and you're so eager to hear God's word. There's a high, high bar. You guys hold me to a high bar, so that's, that's exciting. And uh, I'm really pumped to get back into Ephesians tonight. As many of you know that were here last year, we left off last semester, sem semester right in the middle of our study of Ephesians. And we weren't even close to a good stopping point. I mean, it was like, it was terrible. COVID kind of takes no prisoners. It was just, it was, it was done, right? And, and it felt kind of like, I was trying to think about how to compare it, at least in my life. It felt like walking away from like a steak dinner. Like I'm halfway through the steak, kind of full, getting there. But there's still like half that steak left, you know. And, uh. <laughs> or a great Cobb salad, if you're the non, I don't even know what that is, Cobb salad. <laughs> Sounded cool. All right. Back to my notes. We were right in the middle of chapter four uh, in a section where Paul was teaching us how, how we're to live as Christians. And the Lord was really at work through his word, and that's the theme. If you come to this church, that's what you're going to see. The Lord works through his word. It's not through us or anybody else, but he's working powerfully through the proclamation of the truth. And he was doing that among us. He was revealing sin patterns in our lives. He was helping us see the path forward in repentance and true life. We were learning about how we actually change in this life, how we're actually intangibly transformed. And we learned about living truthful lives. We saw that what repentance from sinful anger looks like. We, we were learning to deal with our anger in a way that pleases the Lord and is constructive. It was just a super rich time. And this year we're going to pick up where we left off uh, eventually. I thought about pulling a John Calvin tonight. Uh, he was exiled from his church in Geneva for three years. And when he finally came back, guess what he did? First sermon back next verse. It's like, man, nice. Nice. My guy, John Calvin. It was, that's impressive. But uh, sadly, I'm not John Calvin. Uh, but what I do want to do tonight is give you a running start into this incredible letter. 
So as I was, I was prepping, I asked myself this question. I said, what, if, if Paul were here, if I was sitting down with the Apostle Paul, like what, how would he like me to, to bring you guys up to speed? What would that look like? How should I start off um, in Ephesians? Well, I, I can't answer that question for sure, but if Paul is like any other author or speaker on the planet, I know that he would want to be heard in context. Context is important, isn't it? Especially in our day and time uh, with soundbite media. Our minds all go there, right? How we can see a video or read a statement and it it looks or sounds terrible by itself and then you kind of get a little bit more context and you're like, oh, at least I can see how they said that. It might still be terrible, but you can still see at least how how they said it. That's what context does. It broadens our perspective and it's super important for understanding what some, something means. So the same is true when it comes to God's word, and, and especially what we're going to do is jump back into the middle of a letter. So as we're getting back into our study, just let me take a minute or two, I'll be really brief, and just give you an orientation to the book as a whole. So if we go way back, before this, this book was written, before Ephesians was written, if we go back to the beginning of the church in Ephesus, we would see that Paul was very instrumental in planting it in its initial startup. In Acts, we would see that Paul had an initial quick visit to a synagogue in Ephesus, in the city, and he was reasoning with the Jews there, sharing the gospel with them, but it was super fast, very quick. Then he came back later and had some extensive ministry there. It was three year, a three-year ministry, and that's long for Paul. Uh, just in God's providence. That was like one of the longest places he stayed. And God flourished ministry in that city. There were, I mean, it's, it's cr- kind of crazy to read the account. There, were a lot of, there was a lot of magic in the city, a lot of sorcery happening, um, false worship, obviously. But a lot of people were converted. They came, they burned their magic books. I mean, it was like kind of a crazy scene. And they experienced radical conversions, and, and they, they were dramatic in their acts of repentance. And so there was a lot of ministry happening, but there was also a ton of opposition. Eventually, Paul left, and one thing led to another, and he wound up in prison in Rome. And that was about five years after he left Ephesus, that that three-year stint. So there was a three-year period. He left five additional years. Make sense? And that's probably, at that that additional five-year mark, that's probably the time he wrote the letter. So it's five years after his ministry there. Why did he write them a letter so many years later? Well, what probably happened is that many more non-Jews, okay, many more Gentiles had come to faith in Christ. And they didn't grow up in Jewish Sunday school. Uh, They didn't have much exposure to the Jewish faith. They didn't have really any exposure to the Jewish Bible or very minimal, i.e. the Old Testament. And so there's a lot that they didn't know. They were outsiders, in a way. Maybe you've felt that way before. They'd heard about forgiveness offered in Christ for any who would believe, and they just availed themselves of Christ. They heard that, that He would forgive them, that He'd been raised, and I think in particular that He had been exalted over the principalities and powers, the, the evil beings that they had once worshipped. Christ was exalted over them now. And so they trusted in Christ. But they, they likely weren't sure exactly how included they were in this big picture plan of God's redemption. Okay? And then beyond that, they still had a sin hangover. So, I mean, these people came out of some paganism. They needed to know how God could renovate them and teach them to live as transformed human beings in the world. 
They needed guidance on how to live in a new way, a righteous way, a way that brought glory to the God who saved them. And so, Paul in prison knows this, sits down, and writes this letter to fill this void. And it's not just for them, but it was for us too. Paul desperately wants his readers, these, these new-ish believers, to know the incredible things God has done for them in spite of what they deserve. He, he wants these believers to grasp their true identities now. How God has, has fundamentally changed them in Christ. He wants them to see the, the wealth they now have in God, the vast riches of God's grace that's available to them in Christ. Because Paul knows if they get it, if it clicks, if we get it, if we will have our eyes open to the glories of, of all that God has done for us in Christ, our lives will inevitably change. There's no other option. The truth in this letter will radically change how you view yourself, and it will progressively and very tangibly transform you into a person who looks like God. A person who thinks and acts like God. But sadly, the reality hits uh, many Christians don't practically live their lives believing the things that are revealed here in Ephesians. Just don't. They don't understand the security they have in Christ. They don't understand what they've been saved for, what they've been saved to. They wonder about God's love for them or His power to help them or about what's coming in the future. They don't perceive that God's love never wanes or changes for them. And so they're anxious irritable in life. They're depressed, discouraged. They live lives defeated by sin, patterns of sin. They're unwilling to break free and experience all that God has for them in Christ. But Paul won't let us do that. Paul's burden is for the church to grasp all that God has done for her. Everything God has done on her behalf and to, and to really live in light of it. And in fact, that's exactly how this letter lays out. So again, kind of in our, our overview portion here. In the first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, he wants us to grasp everything that God's done for us in Christ. Pretty straightforward. First three chapters, all that he's done for us. Then in the second half, he wants us to see how this should play out in our day-to-day -day lives. He, wants, he helps us connect the dots. Like, if we believe this then our life should look like this. This is how it should translate over into, into the day-to-day -day experience. And Paul's message is essentially this, okay? We've been recreated in Christ through the gospel. Now we must learn to live like the new creatures he has made us to be. You want a summary of the book of Ephesians? There it is. He's recreated us in Christ. Now we need to learn to live like the new creation that we are. And if you want one little phrase, it's, it's kind of weird, okay? But it captures the main thrust, this kind, of, this kind of funny idea. We could say it like this. Become who you are, okay? Become who you are. That's a, a crystallization of really Paul's view of sanctification, how we grow. Become who you are. Learn to live like the new creature that you are now in Christ. If you were with us last year, uh, I gave a pretty bad illustration, but it was the illustration by Caterpillar. 
You guys remember this? Sort of. Yeah, some of you, some of you are smirking because it was so bad. But we're like a caterpillar. <laughs> uh, anyway, if you missed it last semester, you can go back and listen to it. I'm not going to go. I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll tell it to you now that I put you on the, put the bait out there. Apparently, caterpillars have everything inside of them. You biology people, science people, tell me, fact check me here. Caterpillars have everything inside of them that they need to become butterflies, like already in them as caterpillars, apparently. And when they wrap up in their little cocoons, they essentially turn into goo. It's a technical term for that. And they reform into butterflies. You know, they kind of like rework themselves into, into a butterfly out of the stuff that was already inside of them as a caterpillar. And then I kind of got real crazy and I, I found a specific species of caterpillar that actually starts growing the wings and stuff before they actually do the metamorphosis, metamorphosis thing. It's kind of weird, but it like, really parallels our lives, okay? We've been fundamentally remade internally as a new creature. So in a very bizarre way, we are like the caterpillar. But in our case, we progressively grow into the new creature that we are in Christ. And we learn, as we learn to think and live like him. So we progressively become the butterfly, so to speak. Then at glorification, we're fully transformed. So Paul's message is, is just this. If that, if that does not helpful for you, then just scratch it. Okay? Become who you are in Christ. That's his message. Now, if we're going to become who we are, that means we have to know who we are. In Christ, right? So, a little behind the times, pretty typical of me in PowerPoints. Ephesians, that's what we're studying. So we got to know who we are. So, who are we? That's essentially what we're, what we're going to cover tonight. I'm not going to re-preach all the sermons because we already worked through like half this book. I thought about just doing an all-nighter. Just going back through the whole book, but I chose wisely. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a brief refresher of who we are in Christ, who we've been recreated to be. And as you can see on the screen, I've entitled this message, Who Are We? Reviewing Our Identity in Christ. So whether this is review for you if you were with us last year or if you're new this year, these are some incredible truths that Paul calls us to embrace. And uh, one, one final word, just real quick before we jump in. If you've believed in Jesus, if you've embraced the good news of the gospel by faith, all that we're about to go over right now is profoundly true about you. Okay? I'm not, that's, it may be like, duh, but you are not allowed to not believe what we see in this text. If you are a genuine believer. It applies, and it's our obligation to believe it. And, and the reason I, I draw that out right here at the outset is because what you're going to feel is it's like gift after gift after gift after gift after gift. And you're going to say, like, this is not right. Like, I am not worthy of this. And you're right. You're not. And that's the point of the book of Ephesians. And it's almost embarrassing how lavishly God Almighty treats us. But you've got to see it. We have to embrace it. And it's, sometimes it's hard to embrace it because we feel unworthy. And we can work through that. Okay? I feel that. I'm with you in that. 
But I just want to call you here to embrace the realities, however awkward it makes you feel, about how, how God I- interacts with you. And if you're not a believer tonight, or you're unsure, you're on the fence, these realities are wide open for you. God's not discriminating. They're wide open for you, even though you're rebelling currently against God. Like, they're here for the taking. You can embrace Christ. You can trust Him tonight. If you're unsure, we can deal with that. We can begin to work through that. And all of what I'm about to say will become equally true of God's attitude toward you. And we would love to make you help sense, uh, love to help you make sense out of all of this stuff um, as, we, as we just join in our friendship with you. So, who are we? Reviewing our identity in Christ. We're going to look at, if you open to Ephesians, open your Bibles to Ephesians. We're going to look at essentially five descriptions of who we are in Christ. Five descriptions of who we are in Christ. That's going to be our outlines, where we're going to, how it's going to flow. Number one, we are comprehensively blessed. We are comprehensively blessed. Now, for those of you who are new, I put all my stuff online after this. So there's a recording of it, and then plus there's manuscripts. So if you just want to drink it in or just write down the impactful things that happen, that's fine, versus feeling like you've got to take everything, everything down. If you're a note taker, that's fine too. You can write. Do whatever you want. We're comprehensively blessed. So look with me in, we're just, what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of try to do a combo here where I'm cherry picking through the book. I don't normally do, but kind of cherry-picking through the book, and I'm, I'm trying to grab some themes that are very relevant for us in the start of our study next week. And at the same time, I'm going to try to, going to, try to overview this first half of the book for you. So, we're comprehensively blessed. Look in verse 3. Paul, right out of the gate, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you hear the repetition, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So after Paul opens this letter, he introduces himself, the first thing he does is break out in some spontaneous song. That's really what's going on here. Anybody have a friend like that? Anybody are that friend? Got too much energy? Grew up singing musicals? Poking around. Okay, never mind. Well, well, Paul can't contain himself here. Paul was that guy. And he opens this letter by praising God for how he's blessed us. How he's blessed Christians. And Paul is one of them. And that's the, the first I- implicit description of our identity, that we are a blessed people. Okay? We're a blessed people. But what does that mean? Okay? What does it mean that we're blessed? Well, it definitely doesn't mean that we're materially rich. Okay, that is, in the New Covenant, that is zero indicator of God's blessing. Okay, so just log that away. Does not mean that we're materially rich, at least not yet. Paul calls these blessings spiritual blessings. See that in verse 3. And that gives us a hint. What does that mean? Spiritual blessings. Well, it means that these blessings are associated with the Holy Spirit. That's what this means. They're associated with the Holy Spirit. With the coming 
of the new covenant. So we don't have time, but if we did, I could show you that the, old co- the, the new covenant, it's tied up with this promise of God's spirit. He's going to come, and he's going to inhabit people and help them. And so when, the, when he, Paul is saying that we have these blessings that are spiritual, that, that means that it's, they're associated with the coming spirit of God. They're also from heaven. That gives us another clue of, of what these blessings entail, which means they aren't materially of this current cursed world. They're from another world. They're from heaven. They're otherworldly. They're the blessings of a new heaven and a new earth that flow to us from being members of the new covenant in Christ. And all these blessings come to us freely in Christ. So he's saying, essentially, at the outset, like, God, you are to be blessed and praised because of how you've richly blessed us. So how do, how do we get there? How do we, how do we become recipients of the, these blessings? I mean, we were all sinners, and sinners, in the Bible, it's like an equation. Sinners deserve curse, right? They don't deserve blessing, and blessing is the opposite of what sinners should receive. So how, how did we, who were sinners, who deserve cursing and not blessing, become the most blessed people on the planet? Well, he goes on in the chapter to describe how that happens. He says, yeah, before the world ever began, God chose you. He chose you. He elected you for this blessing. Verse 3. Verse 4, excuse me. Just read with me. Even as he chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We have a whole sermon on that verse. So if you're curious about that, go there. So he chose you before the world ever began. Then he destined you for sonship. Verses 5 and 6. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the the glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He's destined you. He's assigned you a destiny. And that destiny is one of sonship. What does that mean? That means God assigned your destiny to be his royal son or daughter, to reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth before anything ever started. Then, it says, He redeemed you. Verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. He redeemed you by accomplishing your forgiveness at great cost to Himself, the death of His own Son. And it required the great cost, by the way, because we are great sinners. So He redeemed you. He's given you an inheritance, is what He says next, that's coming in the new creation. Look in verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. He's given you an inheritance that's coming in the new creation. You're going to fully realize it when Christ the King comes back. You're going to suffer now to follow Christ, but when He comes, you will be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination. That's the idea of blessing. Okay? And finally, we've got to move quickly through these, but He's given you the Spirit now to help you and transform you. Look in verse 13. 
In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, when that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. New covenant, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. He's given you Himself. The Spirit. God Himself has come to live with us again in His Spirit. We're no longer cast out of the garden. You go all the way back to Genesis 3. Not in His presence anymore. Guess what? He came to us. Not just in Christ, but in the Spirit. Through Christ now, we've been ushered back into His presence as the Spirit dwells among us in the church. And this is the greatest benefits package known to mankind. And if you're a believer today, all of this is true about you. You are under God's blessing with every single sin forgiven. The proof of it now is in the Spirit's involvement in your life as He grows you into the image of Christ. The fact that the Spirit is there and He's, he's, he's transforming you, as slow as that is, as He's transforming you, that's evidence that you belong, that you're blessed. You're in the realm of blessing. And, and he's, he's a down payment. He's a guarantee that there's like unbelievable blessing coming for you in the kingdom. That's what this passage is saying. Material blessings are not now, but they are coming in, in the kingdom when he returns and we're glorified and when everything is made right and we have the actual capacity to enjoy God's creation and not idolize it. Because we can't right now. And if we are this blessed, and we are, Paul says, notice, that we don't need anything else in this life. He says we have every spiritual blessing. Look at the language here. He's blessed us in Christ with what? With every spiritual blessing. That's where my comprehensive language is coming on the outline. These blessings are comprehensive. We don't need anything else. We have everything we need. Nothing is lacking. We don't need to add anything to God's truth in order to flourish and grow. God has provided all we need through his truth in the church. We don't have to turn to other sources. You don't need a, 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 a psychotherapist to help you through your problems. Like God promises to transform you, to change you into the new creation. We don't need to turn to anything outside of Scripture for our transformation. We have it all here. That's part of the benefits package that we have. So that's the first description, okay? And we just skimmed the surface on that bad boy. Uh, I think there was like four messages on that, okay? We're blessed by God. And the second description of our identity is that we are new creations. I've said this multiple times, but let's look at this a little more carefully. We are new creations. This is the next massive description of our identity in Ephesians. Paul wants us to see the stark contrast between what we once were before Christ. Like every single one of us, no matter how clean you were when you came to Christ, every single one of us were in the same situation. He wants us to see the contrast between what we once were before Christ and what we now are in Christ. And what we were before was a, a, not a pretty picture. Paul says we were utterly dead in sin. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were, we were dead in sin, Paul says. We were like the cadaver at the LU Medical School. Like, there's no, there's no response happening in a dead person. And that's Paul's metaphor. He could have chosen lots of metaphors for our spiritual state before Christ, and he said, you're dead. So um, that's really important to let that sink in. No matter where you were before Jesus, you were dead in sin. But what changed for you? God acted mercifully on your behalf. The big word for this is regeneration. Regeneration happened for you. Now, what it felt like to you was that the gospel was preached. Your mom or dad or pastor or whoever it was, friend, came along beside of you and they began to explain the gospel and it made sense to you. And, but why did it make sense? Like, why? According to this verse, you were dead. Truth doesn't make sense to dead people. It made sense because he regenerated you. God acted in mercy on your behalf. The big word, again, is regeneration. He gave you new life. He caused your dead heart to start beating. When you came to Christ, you weren't drowning and like kind of calling for Christ to come help, help you. You were dead at the bottom of the ocean. And Christ came down and got you. He brought you out and he brought you back to life. That's the metaphor here in Ephesians chapter 2. We've been resurrected in Christ. Look, at, look with me in verse 4. So we were dead, but, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who's the subject of those verbs? God. Did you make you alive? No, you did not. God did, and he's trying to draw that out for you. So he even, he even reminds you, just, he just gave you three verses on your deadness. And then right before he tells you that God made you alive, he said, when you were dead in sin. He's, it, he's trying to emphasize this, God is, is monergistic, meaning like he's the one who did this thing in your life. And the reason, I think, is because he's trying to eliminate all boasting. Okay, we'll get there in a second. We've been resurrected in Christ. Like, what mercy he loved us not because we're lovely, but in spite of it. Does that make sense? Like, God was not moved by, by, your, by your loveliness to come save you. He was moved in spite of your loveliness to come save you. And he, he confers on you his loveliness. Like, that's like a totally different paradigm um, for many of us, including myself. And that's what Paul is saying here. And finally, Paul summarizes everything... In verse 10, and he uses this creation language, which as I'm drawing from my, my point here, we are new creations in Christ. He uses this creation language to help us see what's happened inside of us. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Look, look in verse 10. By the way, we, we skipped so many things in, uh, <laughs> in this passage. Not only did he say he made us alive, but he said he raised us with Christ and seated us with Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that you're enthroned with Christ in the heavenly places, which means you're going to reign with him when he comes back. Like, you're, 
sorry, this is a side note. This is like I'm like re-preaching the sermon now. But you went from being a terrorist against God's kingdom to being at the right hand of God. Do you see that? That's the shift that happened. Like you went from being somebody who's trying to blow up the kingdom of God and ought to be like hanged for that to now you're gonna reign. Like I'm gonna give you authority and you're gonna you're gonna like help me ex- execute my, my will over the earth when I come back. Like that's the transition that's happened. All to the display of God's mercy and kindness and grace. So I, I skipped that part. Okay, so now <laughs> back in verse 10, why what's the point of all this? Right now, in the here and now, okay, what's the point? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Why did all this happen? God, God is, is, he created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's like, God's doing all this stuff, isn't he? Yes, he is. <laughs> he's doing everything. So he's creating you in Christ Jesus, he's creating you for good works, and he's preparing those good works for you to walk in. I mean, he's lined it up for you. So the point about our identity is that we are brand new people. may not feel like it, but we are. Regeneration, God's mercy toward you, makes you a brand new person, a new creature in Christ. That's Paul's language. And we have been recreated for good works. We, we now have new natures that are free to pursue obedience now that we're empowered to pursue holiness, we've been outfitted, another way to put it, we've been outfitted for good works. That's exactly what Paul said. Now this means a couple of things, okay? Wrapping this point up. Number one, if you're not a believer, or not a true believer, you have no power to really grow and be transformed. Does that make sense? It's like trying to crank a car with a dead battery. It's just not going to work. You need a new battery. But if you're a believer, this means that no matter how dominated you feel by sin, this is not your fundamental nature anymore in Christ. See that? See that shift? Christ has changed your battery. Now he's renewing the rest of your car. Do you still struggle? Yes. But are you doomed to a life of failure? Absolutely not. You have a new master now and a new power available to you through the Spirit. God has begun a renovation project in you and he's going to see it to completion because he doesn't do things halfway. Now you just have to learn, and it's learned, you have to continually learn this, how to appropriate his power in your life. How to trust in the truth and believe it by faith and act on the truth. Growth is not easy. In fact, it's like the hardest thing ever. But it's definitely possible, not because we're cool, but because God has wrought us a new creation. He's made us into something new. And he's granted us his spirit to empower that obedience. And that's, that's when I want you to miss this language, that's exactly why God saved you. Like, that's the point. So think of yourself fundamentally as a new creature in Christ. That's your identity. We're people of the new creation, the creation that's coming. That's who we are as Christians. Now, Paul's third description, so that's number two, Paul's third description is that we are near to God himself. Now, you could, I, I could frame this up a number of ways, but I, I chose this, this wording. 
We are near to God himself. Look with me in um, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, that's just another word for Jews, um, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So do you hear the brought near language? You are far and brought near. Now this is a super interesting passage. okay? But we don't have time to delve into all the details of it. Remember how we said at the beginning that the Gentiles, these non-Jews, may have felt like they were outsiders in the early Jewish church? Jewish believers converted, and the Gentiles are coming in. That's kind of how it happened. Well, Paul's trying to obliterate this idea that Gentiles are outsiders. And he's trying to show them that they're just as close to God now as as a believing Jew is. And in fact, they're way closer to God than an unbelieving Jew. At one time in history, they, the, the Gentiles, we were largely cut off from God's covenant people. It's not that God didn't save non-Jews in the Old Testament. He did. But it was rare. And so we, we kind of have to see that this, this time in, in salvation history is unique. It's different. The gospel is now going out to the Gentiles. Gentiles are being included in God's covenant people. And we've been included because of Christ. Now, this, this probably doesn't sound that incredible to those of us who aren't steeped in the Old Testament. But what Paul says here is revolutionary. Unclean Gentiles are now brought near to God's very presence. This language of being brought near is like very significant Old Testament language. Gentiles, and an unclean Gentile, is brought near to God's unmitigated glory because of the cleansing that has taken place through the blood of Christ. That's why you and I are not consumed. Many Jews in the past died as a result of drawing too close to God without being properly cleansed. So it was like frightening to draw near to God. Just, if you want to text on that, just think about the, in, at the Exodus when they came out and they, God gave them the law and he, sh- he showed up on the mountain, the people did not want to go to the mountain. In fact, God was like, hey, stay away from the mountain or you're going to die. Like, don't draw near to me. Only Moses drew near to God after some extensive purification. But now, because of Christ, we're told that we've been brought near to God as Gentiles. And that's, that's, I mean, the Jew would have been surprised by that for himself. Like, I'm brought near to God now? And it's like unthinkable that Gentiles would be brought near to God. And it, it just, this just goes to show you how fully the cross satisfies God's wrath and purifies the believer and gives us favor with God. It's incredible. But the point here is that the Gentiles, who are not God's people, they weren't Israel, have now been included in God's people. And that's most of us here tonight. 
we could say it like this. True Israel, like God's real true, true people, the believing Israel, has been widened to include Gentiles. And there's a lot more we could say about this. I'm just going to cut it off right there, okay? But, but let's, let's think about what this means for us. It means that God delights in having us near. God delights in drawing us close to himself in intimate fellowship with him through his son. Are you worthy of that? Absolutely not. Do you sin? Yes. Does that change anything in terms of the family status and his desire to draw near to you? No. We don't clean ourselves up enough to earn it. Christ has earned it for us. We're fully in. God is not aloof. He's not far off. He's not frustrated with you up in heaven. God is fully present. If you're a believer, a genuine believer, He is fully present and He fully loves you. He fully loves His people. He delights to reveal Himself to you. This is astounding considering what we deserve. Considering that we, we and, then, and then beyond that, we're, we weren't even part of like the true people, like the ethnic people that God promised to bless and, and exalt Israel. And yet now, through Christ, he has widened the door for us to come in. Not only are we near to God himself, number four, we are one new humanity. We are one new humanity. Let's look in verse 14. Let's go ahead and read it. We're one new humanity. Paul says, For he himself, that's Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one. So the both here is talking about Jews and Gentiles. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And, here's another reason, so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, the point of this description, this passage, there's a lot in there, but the point is that God has made two groups into one group. It's really the main thrust of this passage. God's made two groups into one group through the cross. And again, that might not sound like a big deal unless you understand the Grand Canyon gap that was between Jew and Gentile. These two groups hated each other hated each other. And I, I, I hesitated even before I wrote this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The conflict between Jew and Gentile makes the, the, the racial and political tensions of our country pale in comparison. And I know that I'm not, that's not an overstatement. I'm not trying to be dramatic. Like, that's serious. Just around the time of Christ, right there, I'm just this is one example. The Romans crucified thousands of male Jews in their own hometown as a statement for some like minor political like insurrections 
You think about that, the dynamics of that. And then you think about that Roman who did that gets saved, and then you get saved as a Jew, and now you're there together in the church. Like, that's serious. And he killed your dad. So there's some tension, okay? My point is just that there's animosity between the two of them. And Paul even echoes that here, this dividing wall of hostility. The law sort of separated Jews and Gentiles, and there was, there was hostility around that. And Paul has the audacity now to say that in Christ, through Christ, God has made them into one. That's what he did. He's made us one together. One what? What did he make us? Look at verse 15. He says, if we kind of go, through, go there, halfway through that verse, he did this, that he might create in himself one new what? Yelled out. Man, okay, translations, man. One new man in place of the two. So this idea of one new man is the idea of one new Adam. So when you hear man, think Adam. One new humanity in place of the two. So, of course, are there other ethnicities and things in the world? Yes, Gentiles are like every, there's Jews and there's everybody else, Gentiles. And there's just one, one title for that. But the point he's making is that everybody in the world now comes together in this one new Adam, this one new humanity, and it's in place of the two. And it's through Jesus, repentance and faith in Christ. Again, we're just scratching the surface tonight, but, but this gets at God's original goal for humanity. What God intended for Adam and Eve. And Paul is saying that, that God, through the cross, has now achieved the reunification of the peoples of the world into one new humanity through Jesus. This is true racial reconciliation. This is, this is where people who once hated each other are now transformed to forgive and to sacrificially love one another because of the gospel. So, side note. The racial reconciliation that's being pursued right now by the world is extremely short-sighted. And it won't ultimately work. In fact, I would go so far as to say it is a counterfeit racial reconciliation. Because it's treating the issues superficially. Now, would it be great if we made some changes sociologically and other things? Whatever needs to happen, happen. Yeah, if we can kind of improve the lives of folks, but that's not racial reconciliation. This is racial reconciliation, according to God. The reunification of ethnicities through the gospel. And apart from regeneration and resurrection, Racial reconciliation will not ultimately take root in a culture. It's not going to happen. So it's naive to think we're going to end racism, guys. Let's just be honest about that. But it is like new creation happens through the Lord Jesus. So let's set our sights there and pursue those goals. Okay, end of the side note. Back to the main thing. So... This idea of oneness, of unity in the new humanity, it, it sets us up for why we have to pursue reconciliation with each other. So think about this. Ignoring fractured relationships right here in Boundless is unacceptable 
based on our identity in Christ. Does that make sense? It's not an option for us as the one new humanity. We have to strive with all of our might to preserve the unity that Christ created via the cross and, and by raising us up together. Like, we've got to do that. Like, it, it, even if we don't want to, even if it's hard, even if it's awkward, it's extremely painful. Okay. <laughs> You're still one new man. So we've got to deal with it. We have to work hard so far as it depends on us to, to work at this. And again, uh, another side note. So many Christians today are out pursuing the world's methods of racial reconciliation. Okay? Just let me speak to this issue for just a second. They're pursuing the world's methods. They're, they're trying to say, we're going to reconcile according to how the world tells us to reconcile. But however, showing solidarity, protesting, fill in the blank. And if they're Christians, I want to ask, are you pursuing, like, what, are your, what does your relationships in the local church look like? Here's where I'm going with this. The church is the only place that God can truly display racial reconciliation. Make sense? It's the only place where it's actually truly possible. And yet, often we neglect relationships in the church and demonstrating the reconciliation that's taken place, like tangibly to the unbelieving world that has no clue of what's going on and they're all blind and they're pursuing their own solutions. Like, we have the solution. And we can demonstrate that to the unbelieving world who hates us as we work at it, as we work at loving each other, putting up with each other, bearing up with each other, having a hard conversation. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, we can show it in the church. And so I just don't want to see, it, particularly this group, get distracted, satanically distracted, from the true way of, of actually demonstrating True racial reconciliation. So, we've got to humble ourselves. We have to seek forgiveness. We must confess when we hurt others. We've got to repent when someone confronts us about something in our life. To what end? True peace. True peace has to be our goal. So, just connecting the dots. Do you see how knowing our identity as the one new humanity, influences how we live. That's where Paul's going to go. He's gonna, we're going to camp out in some of these things that, we're, that we just talked about in terms of forgiveness and patience and being gentle. So, Paul keeps going. This will be our last one. I had ten of these. But I struck some of them out, okay? <laughs> Number five. Hang with me, guys. We are the eschatological temple. Whoa, that's a huge word. Okay? It's a big one. But you guys are smart. Okay? Eschatological. We are the eschatological temple. Uh, just take that one. You can impress your, your theology professors if you, if you throw that out. But you guys know this. Eschatology is just the study of the end, the study of what's to come, the future, uh, kind of what wraps everything up. So here I'm using it for the, the final end-time temple that was predicted in the Old Testament. The temple that God said in the Old Testament that he would rebuild and he would dwell there forever. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And that's us, the church. So, so look at what Paul says, verse 19. So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he's, he's adding some building language here. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are the end time or the eschatological temple. Paul says a couple things here in this passage. He says this new temple is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That just means that that we were established by their preaching and teaching. God brought us to faith through their preaching and teaching, through the proclamation of the word, and he he encourages and sustains us through the, the teaching of the apostles. So they are foundational in that sense. This is everything we have in the New Testament, everything that's proclaimed to us on a weekly basis. That's why we we teach through books of the Bible, because we don't have anything else to give you, right? That's our foundation. And Paul also says in this temple that Christ is the cornerstone of it. So he's the the main stone that holds everything else together. It's the plumb line. It's the most central stone in this temple foundation. But the temple is growing. Did you catch that language? It's expanding. He says that we, uh, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. So, how is it expanding? Well, as, as more and more people are converted, as more and more people are raised from the dead, Ephesians 2, they become part of the temple. And as those converts grow in the faith, as they become mature, as they, as they learn to live like Paul's saying we should live, the building continues to, it's sort of like building itself up stronger, more and more strong, like it fortifies the building. And it becomes the proper holy dwelling place for the Spirit. This, you know, see how he calls it a holy temple? Like it's, it's, we have tangible righteousness among us. So that means as the church multiplies, God's presence expands in the world as his temple expands. Now, I get it. God is everywhere. We understand that theologically. But what I'm saying is his, his special presence as it's manifested in the temple. Think Shekinah glory in the past. Like that thing's spreading. His, his glory is spreading over the earth as the church multiplies, as churches are planted. And as the church matures, not just as they converts happen, but as those converts begin to grow, like actually begin to learn to live like they're commanded to live, As that happens, his presence becomes more and more obvious in a place through the transformation of the people. Does that make sense? As we grow, think about this. We radiate the glory of God. We display his image. And we extend Christ in a way. That's the whole point of that body metaphor, that we are his body. Like, we extend him. We, in Ephesians, Paul calls the body language, he says that we are his fullness, of, the fullness of Christ, the church is the fullness of Christ, who fills all in all. What, that, what does that mean? That means that we essentially are radiating Christ. We are like the extension of him and his ministry on earth as his body. That's the idea here with the temple. There's a lot of overlap in all these images. 
We radiate His glory. We display His image and we extend Christ into the community. So we should view evangelism. Just think with me how this changes how you think. We should view evangelism in this very light. As a temple building project. As the spreading of God's glory in the world. And we should view our growth in Christ as the maturing of that temple. The brightening of the radiance of the glory of God. The more gracious, the more tender, the more forgiving, the more truthful we become, the harder we work, the more generous we are, the more we radiate Christ to the world. That's the point. And and two things will happen simultaneously, like at the same time in the community. Two things will happen. This is not like Clay being a prophet. This is Clay knowing the Bible. Two things will happen. One is the people that God has destined to save. By the way, he does that, remember? God makes alive. So the people that he destined to save, he will attract and draw to the assembly because of their radiance. But guess what else will happen? The people that hated Christ will hate us because we look like him, we smell like him, we act like him. And those two things will happen simultaneously. We see that throughout all of Scripture as that happens. So buckle up because it's coming, but there's a wide open door for everybody else that God is drawing to himself to build this temple that he's ordained for his glory in the world. And guess what? It's going to triumph. He will build the temple. It won't be destroyed, even if we are. Like, he will continue to raise people from the dead through our faithful witness unto death. So that's what's going to happen as we're faithful. But may this be our identity. May we see ourselves as the eschatological temple that Paul lays out for us here in in chapter 3. Chapter 2, actually. Well, we're getting technical. It expands into chapter 3, but... All right, I'm going to wrap this up. Like I said, we're not going through the rest of the five, okay? Just five ways, five descriptions of, of who we are in Christ. And, and there's definitely more we could say, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it here. Have you ever seen um, <laughs> two little kids trying to feed each other? Or in particular, maybe a little bit older kid and a little bit younger kid, like my kids? The older one, you know, they're trying to, it's like the younger one is like, Mouse full of macaroni and cheese, just like bulging. And the older one's like trying to get like one more noodle in there. It's like trying to work it. That's how I feel right now. I'm like, ah, no, better not. I might choke you guys. Uh, I'll back off. There's more noodles in here. If you're hungry, we can serve it up. But the bottom line tonight is this, guys. Knowing who we are in Christ, shapes how we live. You got that? Who we are, knowing who we are, shapes how we live. If we don't realize our identity in Christ, our attempts at obedience won't be rightly motivated. And if we're going to become who we are in Christ, we've got to know who who we are. So, what do you do with a message like this? Well, my encouragement to you would be to work back through some of these different descriptions that we went through, and, and maybe find more in Ephesians, work back through those 
with your friends, grab a couple of you, one of you, whatever, and, and just like through the week or call each other up and study through Ephesians together. Work through these. And grab one of the leaders here in Boundless. Ask them if they would like help you think through this. If there's a particular one that stood out to you, like, wow, I don't think about that at all. Um, give some attention to that. Like, study that out. See how the Bible presents that and how that could be an encouragement to you. Um, and if you need help, all of my manuscripts, and I write like every word I say, Okay, so it's all online. I've posted them all there. So, and there's lots of footnotes in those things that I don't even get to. So there's lots of material there for you if you want to study it, like the stuff we've already gone over. The sermons are there online. Uh, and it's all on our college ministry page on Boundless. So if you go to TimberlakeBaptist.org and you go to the Boundless page, college ministry page, it's all right there. Um, so avail yourself of that. And it's going to take more work than just coming here. This is vital, but to get the Word of God in you takes work. You've got to work at it. So try to understand these realities because they're going to pave the way for transformed living in days to come. And if you have questions, by all means, like come talk to me afterwards. It's like one of the thrills about Thursday gatherings. I don't have to rush right to another service. Like we can hang out, talk, interact. If you have questions, push back. I love pushback, okay? It means that there's something's resonating and we can... We can dialogue on that. So, um, yeah, let's talk. And so when we assemble next week, we're going to jump back into to learning actually how to, how to grow into people who resemble Christ, people of the new creation. So we're going to lear- learn about working hard, being generous, uh, how to talk in a way that gives grace and builds up this temple, um, bitterness, resentment, what to do with that stuff. It's going to help us cultivate kindness and forgiveness and tenderness. So all that's coming, and we just, we're just want to learn, as he says in chapter 5, verse 1, to be imitators of God. That's the goal. And it's messy. <laughs> but we're going to work at it together. That's what we are in the church, okay? And uh, we're committed to that. And we love you guys. And, uh, yeah, we're just excited to commence the study together. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, um, along with the Apostle Paul, he prays twice in Ephesians, that you would illuminate our hearts, um, that we would be able to, to, to perceive in our inner person um, the realities of these truths. I can preach until I'm blue in the face, and if your spirit doesn't turn the lights on, um, it's, it's vain. So I beg you to... Help us see these things, and I beg you to help us live in that reality. Um, And God, you promise that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think. So we just end focusing on that, meditating on that tonight. May you be glorified in our friendships and in our fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.